Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm very familiar with that book as they came up and put that out there because that one came out when I was in high school and uh, was like, that was all the rage, that book. And so a uh, great tune that has been used of God in many different ways uh, over many years. Sometimes, as Christians, we go to church week after week and we hear things that just start to become background noise. They start to be the things that we expect to hear at church all the time, phrases that lose their actual meaning. Today I wanna to talk about one of those to, uh, in, in the opportunity I have today to talk with you. This is a great privilege and I, I appreciate being asked and having the ability to, uh, to stand in front of you folks today and speak with you about this concept. Today I wanna to talk about what is the glory of God? And how does understanding the glory of God and what it means to glorify God, how does that change or how could that affect how I act in my everyday life? So let's start with a word of prayer as we begin on this topic. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we have this time together this morning that you would be glorified. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be clear and concise, to get the information that is needed to understand and to challenge and to spur to love good works and greater glory of you. God, I pray that you would help me to be accurate today as well. Most of all, I pray that the passages that we look at would have an impact in the hearts and the lives of these students, faculty members, teachers, and visitors. And may we be greater reflections and uh, reflectors of uh, praise and glory to reflect it up to you that you may be lifted high. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The concept of glory, glorifying God is all around us in church culture. We, we hear and we see it everywhere. For, for decades and millennia in history, this idea of glorifying God has been prominent. The Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When you study dispensationalism, you get uh, the concept that the chief end of history is the glory of God or that God is to be glorified. Sometimes it's called the dox doxological purpose of history. I got the opportunity to work through uh, a mission statement and core values at my last church as we were revamping those things and trying to solidify and, and focus a few things. And uh, we were coming up with a new uh, mission statement and every one of them started with the same phrase. And it's good that it does. But it seems like every church mission statement everywhere starts with, uh, you know, such and such a church exists to glorify God through and then it fills in the gap, uh, fills in the blank with uh, how they uh, want to portray themselves. But the goal there is to glorify God. Even if, you, as you see on the screen there, the MBU mission statement, developing leaders for ministry in the local church and the world to the praise of his glory. It's everywhere. And because it's everywhere, sometimes we just think, well, what's the glory of God? Well, it's, it's the glory of God. I mean, it's glory. It's glory. And that's all we get. 
But there are some wonderful and beautiful nuances to this term glory that I'd like to help you see today. Last time I got to preach last, uh, last fall, I did more of an expositional uh, uh, sermon. This one is very topical, so we're going to be going to several different uh, passages as we get into it. But the, the word that we understand as glory in both the New Testament and Old Testament are, are very tied. And uh, as we get started, I want to talk about uh, a term that you'll hear often and uh, might, be, might flitter through your mind if I didn't talk about it right up and I just want to get it out there. Sometimes people, when they think about the glory of God, they want to talk about the Shekinah glory. And you hear about this, and, and, and I just want to say it's not an actual biblical term. It's found in the writings of the Talmud by the Jewish rabbis, and it's, it's an expression used to emphasize the presence and dwelling of God with man and that radiance and the radiance thereof. So as we talk, I'm not necessarily talking about the Shekinah glory. That is something that has a whole realm of study on its own and that is a little bit extra biblical, although the concept does help us understand one aspect of the glory of God. So in Exodus, the presence of God is seen in things, especially like the pillar of cloud and of fire. And these, uh, these things were with the Israelites all through the wilderness wanderings and even in the tabernacle uh, as it was set up in the promised land. But one of the best examples that we have of this issue of, of uh, the glory of God and our first concept that I want to bring uh, talk to you about in what the glory of God means, it's found in Exodus 38, sorry, 33, 18. Exodus 33, 18. It's a really interesting discussion that features the presence of God and his shining radiance. That is the first concept that is uh, inside the glory of God is this idea of his shining radiance or his, his shining splendor. In Exodus 33:18, Moses is on uh, Mount Sinai. He and God have been having several conversations. And at uh, one point, uh, Moses asks this in, in verse 18, and he said, I beseech you, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. And then we know, we don't have time to read it all, but uh, as, as the passage goes on, the narrative goes on, we see uh, that God tells him, uh, you can't see my face. I'll let you see the trailing end of my glory uh, as I pass by. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and you're going to see just the very trailing end. And even that amount of, of Moses seeing that uh, small amount of God's glory in its shining radiance and its splendor was enough to make his face glow and shine so much that days later when he came down off the mountain, people said, you've been with God. You're shining. So the first concept that I want you to think about here is this idea of uh, shining, uh, splendorous gloriousness. The Hebrew word that here is gl uh, set, called glory, uh, sometimes it's uh, rendered glorious. We've got uh, uh, noun forms and verb forms and all that kind of stuff, but the root in it is used um, around 200 times at, at least in the Old Testament. Um, and in 45 of those times refer to the presence of God and the visible manifestation of God. 
It's such an important and weighty concept that when the Septuagint translators of the Hebrew Old Testament, they went to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek around 200 BC, they chose a Greek word that was close, that kind of just meant opinion, but it's the best that they could get. But because this concept, uh, the Hebrew word that was used for glory, uh, was infused with this concept so heavily, they actually succeeded in, uh, for the New Testament, redefining the word. So the, the Greek word that we find that is glory in the New Testament is very heavily dependent upon the Hebrew understanding of glory as well. There's a straight through line from one to the other. So the Greek word translated glory so often, such as in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, it's tied directly in its understanding to the Hebrew word and concept of the shining radiance and presence of God. You can't get away with it. You can't get, sorry, you can't get away from it. As soon as, uh, as you start studying out what glory is in the Old Testament, you're pulled directly into this concept of the shining radiance of God. And because it is so important, then as, as things uh, migrated through the Septuagint into the, Old, into the New Testament, the translators took their Greek word and basically redefined that Greek word by what that Hebrew word uh, was meaning as well. If you look in the, Old, in the New Testament, uh, look at John 1.14, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, we see another example of this as well. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So we have that presence aspect talked about dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the, of the only begotten of the Father, Father full of grace and truth. So we have the presence of God, and then this idea of glory, of the shining uh, splendor and radiance of, of, uh, of God. So the first concept of the glory of God has to do with his shining radiance and splendor and presence thereof. The second part that is tied into the concept of glory, the glory of God has to do with his enormity or his bigness. Look in Psalm 108, verse 5. Psalm 108, verse 5 says, Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above all the earth. This idea of the glory that can encapsulate the entire earth. He's, he's large, he's great, he's big. Psalm 24, 7 through 10 says this. Uh, well, by the way, you, many of you are working on the Messiah. Are you guys doing uh, lift up uh, your heads or your gates? You guys doing that one as part of the Messiah? Anybody? No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the, the songs in uh, Handel's Messiah uh, is from this text. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. 
So there's a lot of different ways that people have interpreted this passage, um, understanding what are the heads, what are the gates, what are they asking them to do, all of that. Uh, there are several different interpretations of that. Uh, when, I, when I study this out, I think that this is literally talking about the bigness of God. Lift up your heads. It's the idea of that, that headpiece of the door. It's got to get bigger. It's got to get higher because God is so big to enter in, we need more space. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. He's coming in and he's big. He is mighty. He is mighty in battle. And uh, so we here have that idea of the king of glory, that, that, uh, that bigness of God. So this, the first part, again, the, the glory of God has to do with his shining radiance, his splendor. Number two, the enormity or bigness of God. And then number three has to do with his honor or the weight of God. Very tied to the concept of his, of his enormity, his bigness. Uh, but it's uh, the idea of the weight of God. You know, there's a funny thing about the Hebrew word that's often translated glory. Uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, originally it was just consonants, and so vowels had to be supplied, and then often uh, it, was, it was by, uh, by context that they would understand. Uh, later on, they put in vowel points and all that kind of stuff so that you kind of know what vowels are supposed to be there. But uh, those same three consonants, uh, three or four consonants that, that make up this concept of glory, uh, also can be translated liver, which seems like an odd pairing, right? Um, but that the, the idea there is that the liver as well is a very weighty organ. Did you know that your liver is the heaviest internal organ? The heaviest internal organ, very strange. Um, but it's not that, it is, that we should always, when we read glory, we should be thinking liver. Uh, it's the idea that glory has to do with weight. And so it's, it, it would make sense that uh, the, those were somehow connected. But the idea of weight or importance, from this we can understand the connotation of weight that is also tied to the concept of glory in the Old and New Testament. So for an actual biblical reference to the weight of the issue in a political sense or a sense of importance, let's look at Isaiah chap, uh, chapter 40, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. It says, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Here we have this idea of Valleys being raised up and mountains being lowered. What's that doing? It's making a level plain. All right. Why? Because the glorious Lord is about to come. And the idea is he's going to pass through. He's going to walk. We're going to make it easy. The terrestrial reconstruction is because of the honorable God that needs to traverse it. Modern day, it's the same kind of concept as like rolling out the red carpet. This honored and important person, this person of great weight in the world, deserves to walk on something that is uncommon. 
They, have, they need high-class footing. And so in the same way, the glory of God, because he is an important person, all of this is made, made straight and level. He is, he is uh, better than the, than the common hills and valleys that everybody else has to traverse. This is an example of glory having the picture of importance or political weightiness. So we've seen that glory in this sense has the picture of, of weight or importance. When God is glorified, he's perceived as weighty. His presence matters. His word matters. His opinion matters. His desires for my life and yours matters. So next I want to talk about some questions that we might have about bringing glory to God. There's some problem questions that might come up in your mind if you really try and start thinking about this. First one is, uh, so God is infinitely glorious, right? Because he is infinite and perfect in all of his attributes and he's infinitely glorious. So how can we bring him more? This has much to do with the next set of questions I'm going to talk about in a minute as well, uh, about whether bringing glory to God is ontological, meaning adding to the state of his being, or whether it's perceptional glory that is recognized by an individual irrespective of actual glory. We're gonna, I'm going to tie that one up in a moment. But that's a good question. How can we bring glory to an infinitely glorious God? How can imperfect and corrupted beings add to the perfected glory of their creator? God's actual glory is established and unalterable. His actual glory is established and unalterable. But his, but his glory as the splendor, enormity, or weightiness understood and as, uh, assented to by others is constantly in motion and subject to influence and change. I'm going to say that again. His glory as the splendor, enormity, or weightiness understood and assented to by others is constantly in motion and subject to influence and change. So another question is, is this concept of bringing glory to God personal or communal? Can I do this all by myself? Can I bring glory to God all by myself? Well, the answer to that is yes, but I think that this is a lesser application of these principles. However, I would say if you're not reminding and convincing yourself of the splendor of God, the enormity of God, the importance of God, then you will not be successful in making him out in those ways in the eyes of others. So it's got to be a personal practice, yes, but it finds its ultimate conclusion and its ultimate application as we are in community with others. The primary end of the process of bringing glory to God or glorifying God is in the context of others, in context of community, or at least external to oneself. So the last few minutes I have here, I would like to talk with you about the practice of bringing glory to God. We've talked about what the glory of God means, what some of the three big ideas that are in that concept of the glory of God. But now if I'm supposed to bring glory to God, what does that look like? What does that actually mean? How could that change my, uh, the way I look at life? 
as Christians, we are the redeemed image bearers of God. We're the closest thing to the physical manifestation of God on earth at this time. I'm not saying we are gods. That's not what I'm saying. But we are the image bearers of God. And mankind is a marred image bearer of God. But we are redeemed, and so we are closer to that actual image than those who are unsaved. We're the closest that there is at this time on earth because we don't have the physical representation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, though we look forward to the time that we do. Our lives hold untold possibility of showing the glory of God. When people see us, are they enamored of the one and truly splendorous God? So how do I make God shine to others? Look at Matthew 5.16 to begin with. Matthew 5.16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. So we're talking about light and shining, the splendorous nature of of God. And it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. They see your light. They see the good works that you do and they see it as luminous. But because you are Christ's child, you reflect that glory of God as they either try to praise you, give you praise, glory, encouragement, things like that, you reflect it up to God, or as they look at you, they are drawn to the beauty and splendor and luminescence of God. How do we make God shine to others? Well, our good works, our living as Christians, all of those things that God asks us to do that he says bring him glory, we do those things and we make him shine in, in the view and the understanding of others. It's, it's our good works, but it's our good works as a reflection. Next, look at John 11, verse 4. John 11, verse 4. This is uh, in the context of uh, Lazarus, who was sick and then died, and uh, they were coming to Jesus and telling him what was going on, that there was a sickness. This was just prior to the news that Lazarus died. Jesus says this, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. God planned this event in the life of Lazarus, in the life of Lazarus' sisters, in the life of of Jesus. He planned it in order for him to shine and for Jesus to shine in splendor. So what what is then the the application? How How does that work into our life? Well, it's the idea of allowing our circumstances to speak of the splendor of God allowing your circumstances, your life circumstances to speak of the splendor of God. How does 
How does your homework and how you do your homework speak of the splendor of God? Is it in the work that you're doing? Is it, uh, is it when you're successful in it that you, that to those around you, you make God shine because you know that it wasn't all in you to get this homework done and to do it well, but it was God working through you and giving you some ideas and helping you go down the right path and having that spark of, of an idea uh, to, for your, your paper topic and say, it, it was the Lord and, and I wouldn't have been there without him. I just thank God so much for that. Are you making God shine even through your homework? How about when you are involved in, in music? When people hear you sing or hear you play uh, or, or, or hear you do speech, are people drawn to the luminescence of God? How about your school bill? Can God be made radiant in your school bill? There are lots of opportunities, whether it's through a good job that you get to work hard for and say, God provided for me a job to help me pay my school bill. Or maybe it's that, that precious, unexpected gift. Are you using those things to help God look like a shining, a shining entity that is in your world that outshines all of the other things that are glorious? Maybe your family trouble. Maybe it's your family trouble where God needs to shine bright. And you need to bring a little bit of that spark Maybe it's trials in your sports teams. Things are going rough. How do you make God shine? Is that the question you ask? Things are dark right now. We need the light of Jesus. How can I help make God shine brighter in this situation? Maybe it's in your fight against sin. So often, so often we lose sight of the glorious splendor of our Lord and Savior. And we are so easily detracted, uh, drawn away by the lower lights, the lesser lights. Make God shine in your fight against sin. So how do I make then God, how do I make God big in the minds of others? I'm running out of time, so I'm going to speed through a little bit of this. How do we make God big in the minds of others? Well, we can do it by example. It starts with your overall testimony. Do people around you know that you are God's child? If you don't have that, the rest is going to be pretty hard. Do they know it either by your speech or the way you live or both? The largeness of your righteous actions can, righteous actions can show the largeness of God. You can be living for the larger kingdom of God and that shows your understanding of the largeness of God. Think about Matthew 6.33 where it says, uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. The things that you might worry about, food, clothing, shelter, things like that, all these things will be added to you. God is just basically saying, I'm going to take care of you. You seek my kingdom, I'm going to take care of you. Paul Tripp, in his book, A Quest for More, develops the idea that living for yourself shortchanges the great things that God has for his children. And he makes that case partly here from Matthew 6.33. And his clutch statement in this book that he keeps going back to and developing is this idea of 
Don't shrink your life to the size of your life. Your life is pretty small. It's, it, it's, we can only imagine so much. But if we release our little kingdom and say, I'm going to live for the greater kingdom of God, he opens up so much for our life. So much that we can be involved in, things we never dreamed about that we could be used for God. He is so much bigger and greater. And then as we release our little kingdom and walk with God in his kingdom and we, we experience that greatness, we can show his greatness. We have brought glory to God by showing the greatness of God even in our life as we pursue, pursue his kingdom. We can also make God big in the minds of others through interaction. How often does a great act of God come up in your conversation? How often does the work of God in your life that is awesome and amazing, how, does that, how often does that come up? How often does it pass your lips? Well, that's just kind of weird. I don't really want to be that guy or that girl. Like, we're at a Baptist university. I mean, we're talking about it all the time. I don't want to be that guy who's bringing it up again. Showing the greatness of God. When you are encouraging your friend who's downhearted, is the greatness of God something that you can make into a comfort and an encouragement? In our lives, as we are tempted to choose sin, one of the aspects is that our view of God has gotten smaller. He's not big enough. We don't see him as sufficient enough in our minds at that time. If you're an accountability partner for someone, whether it be for sexual purity, for correct responses, or getting rid of bitterness, do you point them to the greatness of God that is sufficient and large enough to fill them? So finally, how do I make God then weighty in the decisions and the life of others? Well, again, first of all, by example, 2 Corinthians 1, 17 through 20 Paul here is talking uh, to, the, to the Corinthians. He says, When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness or the things that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our, uh, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen. So here we have this idea, it's a little convoluted. In the context, Paul is saying, I can be trusted. I told you what I was going to do. I wanted to come and see you, and I didn't just say it flippantly. I meant it. I was sincere. All right, I was sincere. Why? Because of the glory of God, the work of God. Uh, I'd like to develop that a little bit more, but I don't quite have uh, enough time uh, to develop all of that. But in this section, he is saying that because of Jesus, he is, he is sincere and he's trustworthy. Jesus was important to him, and so just saying words that made you feel better, like I was going to come to you, just saying words that made you feel better wasn't interesting to me. Jesus is important to me, so being sincere is. And that sincerity is because of Jesus. 
From this passage, we can see that, bringing, uh, that being trustworthy with our comments, keeping our word is associated with bringing glory to God. We may not think that it is important sometimes, but it is. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who have told me they're going to, uh, they're going to do something, they're gonna to come, to, come to school here in the fall, or uh, that they're gonna do a thing to, to, to prepare for basketball, or something like that, and they say, yeah, they're gonna do it because they think that's what I wanna hear. But they're not sincere. One way that we can show that God is important to us is by our sincerity and holding to our word, that our yes be yes and our no, no. But here are a couple other things by way of interaction where you can show people that God is important, that he is weighty. Discussions with friends about life decisions. When people come and talk to you about uh, their boyfriend or their girlfriend or about what they're gonna do for the summer work, is, is God part of that conversation? Is he not just the thing that's in the background that we all, we all assent to understand that yes, we all wanna do what God wants us to do, but is he in the forefront? And how do you bring him to the forefront? There are many different ways, but is he in the forefront? Is he important in the discussion? When you counsel with people who are struggling, are you worried about trying to fix the, the ways that they act and work and, and talk and, and act towards one another? Or are you looking to see, are they putting God first? Is God important to them? How can I show them that God is important here? He is weighty. His opinion matters. Do you infuse conversations with concepts like, what would walking in the spirit look like in this situation regarding your feelings? Regardless of your feelings. As you're, as you're doing this, you feel one way, yes, okay, we, we understand that and we wanna deal with that. But for a moment, let's think about how would the Holy Spirit have us walk in this regardless of the feelings? And then let's see if we can reconcile those and, and work on those feelings as well. But is the spirit, is the work of God important enough to bring that up? Scripture. Does scripture come up in your conversations? When you're de dealing and discussing and, and going through uh, things that may seem apart from God or apart from scripture and mundane, does scripture come up? And then finally, the last one I wanna say, you may say, is he going to get there? The most important, if you want to help people around you know the weightiness of God and that he is important, go to him. Take those people around you to him in prayer. Prayer is probably one of the best ways we can immediately, quickly show the importance of God. Because if we are at a deficit for what we want to do in life or what we think we should do, if we're at a deficit not knowing what we should do, we need to go to the one who, who abounds in that wisdom and abounds in all of that. We need to go to God in prayer. So, the three concepts of the glory of God. His splendorous luminescence. His shining. That God is big. He is bigger than you, bigger than me. He's just big. And let's glory in the bigness of God. 
And then also that he is weighty. He matters. He's important in every area of life. If you think about those three things in life and are thinking, I want to bring glory to God, how do I make God shine right now? Or how do I make God look really big? How do I make God look weighty and seem important in this situation? If you're asking those questions and you follow through on those things, you will be successful in bringing glory to God. People will live and see that God is amazing and glorious. And we will be living to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity. Lord, I hope that I've even succeeded in what I was preaching about. That you shine brighter today. That you are bigger. That you are weightier in the minds of all those in attendance today. God, we want to bring you glory. We know that that is what we're here to do. So, Lord, I pray that we would be a university that moment by moment, day in, day out, opportunity by opportunity, make you shine in the, in the minds and hearts of others. Convinced that you are big and that you are important. And may that be in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.